When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Today, my guest is Dr. Raj Shah, director at the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, the 16th administrator of USAID under President Barack Obama, now the president of the Rockefeller Foundation with a $20 billion fund leading the 110-year foundation globally. Welcome to Success Story. I'm your host, Scott Clary. The Success Story podcast is part of the HubSpot Podcast Network. For everyone listening, I just have to ask you a question. Do you want to know what separates the contenders from the pretenders, the A-list from the C-list, world champions from the world not champions? It's pretty simple. The fourth quarter in sports, more importantly for a lot of the people listening here in business, finishing strong is key. Now, HubSpot's new sales hub is the software that you need for your sales and your sales team to win Q4. You could be a solopreneur. You could own and run a larger business, regardless if you are selling anything to anyone, which I think a lot of the people who are listening to this are, you need to check out Sales Hub. So there is a new prospecting workspace. There's revamped deal management tools. There's smart sequencing. Sales Hub is loaded with everything you need to turn leads into prospects and then convert those prospects into customers. With Sales Hub, you have the right information at the right time to build better relationships, which means closing deals has never been easier. So this Q4, give yourself and your team the tools to win big with HubSpot Sales Hub. Learn more at HubSpot.com sales. You know what? I'm from suburban Detroit uh, in Michigan. My parents are immigrants from India, and I grew up in a pretty typical Indian-American community uh, in in that time. And at that time, sort of our options, if you were a hardworking kid, were you could be an engineer or a doctor. Uh, And I actually wanted to do both. (laughs) Didn't realize there was any other opportunity or option out there. And, uh, and frankly, when I was a senior in high school, uh, Nelson Mandela was released from prison. And of all places, he came to Detroit. And he walked on the River Rouge auto plant and met with auto workers. My dad had worked at Ford for more than 30 years. Uh, and he ultimately gave an amazing speech at Tiger Stadium. And I was a huge Tigers fan. But it was very Motown. Stevie Wonder was the... Uh, opening act and and Mandela spoke and I was just watching on TV but I was transformed and I just thought what an amazing human being what an amazing leader he brought tears to everyone's eyes with recounting his struggle and frankly thanking the people of Detroit for their support and I kind of knew in that moment that I wanted to do something with my life that was more oriented around social change and social justice and impact for those who are left behind. Um, but I had no idea what to do. So went off to college and one thing led to another and I ultimately had the chance to have this type of career. But that was, that was the moment when I realized uh, that being a doctor or being an engineer in and of itself was, was probably not going to be my path long-term. You know, I, I admire that because I think a lot of people have those altruistic goals. It, I think that the changing the world for the better is is a, a thing that everybody wants to accomplish early on in their career, but you ended up in a spot where you could actually do it. And I think a lot of people find themselves aimless and find themselves lost. Maybe we don't have to go into everything you've done in your career because you've done a lot and we'll talk about your story and throughout, you know, this podcast and different pieces of it, but Let's talk about some of those key things, some of those purposeful things that you did throughout your career that allowed you to eventually end up to where you're at now, where you can actually, you know, invoke meaningful change at scale. Well, you know, I so I I went on from uh, from college and went went on to medical school, and as a as a training 
doctor to be, I was a highly distracted one. So I kept getting involved, and I got involved in a local political campaign for for then Mayor Ed Rendell in Philadelphia. I kept taking the train down from Philly to D.C. to volunteer and engage in policymaking operations. And uh, finally, I got a chance to join Al Gore's presidential campaign. And that was really uh, a unique experience for me because I'm, here I was like a college graduate, a medical school, almost graduate. Uh, and I went down there just as a volunteer. And, and uh, that experience changed my life because it introduced me to people who were like me, wanted to be involved in social impact and political activity. Uh, and even though we lost that campaign, some of us thought we won it. <laughs> and I could sit here and make the argument that more people voted for Al Gore in Florida for sure. But uh, when we lost that campaign, I, saw, uh, I, I was sort of searching around for what to do, and I landed at the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation right when Bill and Melinda were starting their major philanthropic initiatives. And really, I wrote the book Big Bets because of what I learned in those early days at the Gates uh, at the Gates's hands, which was they wanted to do things that were going to make the make the world a better place, but they wanted to do it at massive scale. It wasn't enough to just say let's help some kids be healthier. It was how do we immunize every child on the planet to save child lives by the millions? And I feel like I learned a mindset and an approach in that setting that I was then able to apply and government in the Obama administration and now at the Rockefeller Foundation. You know, that's like that's like taking big, hairy, audacious goal to another level. <laughs> right. It really it really is. And I think that I was listening to a couple different podcasts just to sort of prep for this. And I and I thought of I, I listened to um, uh, Armchair Expod with with Dax and you were great on it. And one of the points that he brought up, which I thought was so interesting, was how effective Bill and Melinda Gates are at philanthropy because of their success in the business world. Maybe walk me through some lessons that you learned working with them in terms of just nonprofit efficacy, because I think we've seen the opposite end of the spectrum where we've seen nonprofits that are not effective and they don't really change the world and, you know, really move the needle the way that we expect them to. And I think that's sort of you know, we start to lose faith when we give money and give money and give money and what and nothing really changes. So just walk me through that experience with with the, the Bill Melinda Gates Foundation. Well, I think the first big lesson is if you're going to seek to create transformational change in the world, aim high. You know, I, the book is called Big Bets because these are big mm -hmm. aspirational goals. Uh and it's very easy when we try to, quote unquote, do good to think that doing good is good enough. And therefore, uh, we get trapped in what I call the aspiration trap in the book, which is just all the cynicism is overwhelming and the problems are so big. So you say, OK, I'm going to do something small and modest and move on. Mm -hmm. Bill, Bill and Melinda took a very different point of view. I mean, they, they read a newspaper article about 400,000 kids dying every year of a disease called rotavirus. And said, okay, all these kids are dying in poor countries from rotavirus. Almost nobody dies in uh, the United States, yet all the vaccines are available and going to be available in richer places, not in poor ones. Why, why is it like that? What can we do to change the system so that vaccines are manufactured at a scale and a price point that make them accessible everywhere? And what kind of investments are required to do that? So, uh, you know, 20 plus years later, 980 million kids vaccinated, 16 million lives saved. And it all started with Bill asking some pretty simple questions. In fact, the first chapter is called Ask a Simple Question because- I know. He, <laughs> we we he don't have to go chapter together. by chapter, yeah. but I see there's like a playbook that, <laughs> that you, you sort of like reverse engineered here. We'll go it, through it some was, of this. Yeah. 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 And, you know, but he would bring us all together and say, what does it cost to vaccinate a child? Yeah, And it'd be shocking. It took us like two years to answer that with discipline and with enough modeling to actually understand what was happening out there. And that was the basis for, for achieving those goals. Do you feel like, you know, you've worked in both private and public sector. Do you feel as though uh, one own, should own more responsibility for changing the world? And I, and I say that because uh, it seems like what you can do in private sector with smart, ambitious, talented people can move the needle much quicker. And traditionally, I believe that we look to governments to solve a lot of these issues. And we feel that governments move slow and they're not as efficient as some of these private sector individuals that technically 
you know, they don't have to operate within the confines of, of bureaucracy, right? And you've seen this firsthand. So whose responsibility is it? Who's doing a better job? What should we learn about working between the public and private sector? Because you have this unique experience of doing sort of both jobs. Well, I think the basic approach to making and executing big bets can be done in either. So finding fresh, innovative solutions to kind of seemingly sticky problems, mm -hmm. building the kind of unlikely partnerships and alliances required to sustain them, and frankly, measuring results with discipline. You can do that in the public sector. And I, and I have seen, whether it was the Haiti earthquake response or fighting Ebola, in West Africa or uh, many other efforts, I've seen that you can bring that mindset to the public sector. The thing the private sector has that is so special is the capacity to innovate, to take risks, to go first, to be bold. And uh, for, for a lot of reasons, that's much, much harder to replicate in the public sector. The thing the public sector has that the private sector doesn't is scale. Scale and a mission to reach everybody uh, with with whatever the policy purpose is. So really, big bets are best when you can marry the innovative capacity to take risks in the private sector with the scale, the resourcing, and the sense of mission that you can develop in the public sector and then see it through with the rigor and discipline around measuring results that should exist in both. Uh, and that, and that's, when you, that's when you get the real magic to happen. Um, you know, you mentioned this this aspiration trap, and I and I think that this is a let's let's start there because this is sort of where this whole problem stems from. Um, when you are say an entrepreneur, a lot of entrepreneurs listen to this show and they're looking to build the next big thing, and they want to do good in the world, but they're you know worrying about finding product market fit and you know making making rent next month, and they're going to listen to this and they be like, oh yeah, well, I'm sure Bill Gates and and the Rockefeller Foundation are able to change the world and they're able to make these big bets. Like yeah, they, billions are are at play here. It's not my reality. So. I, I'm aspirational. I'm. I want to make the world a better place. I'm an entrepreneur. What are the lessons you're going to teach me? How do I avoid this aspiration? Uh, this aspiration trap. Well, I think it starts by being able to zoom in and zoom out. Right. Okay. So, so great entrepreneurs can zoom out, see the forest for the trees, understand how their vision is going to affect change at massive scale, whether that's transforming an industry or building a new one or uh, innovating technology that changes the way people live. But then to make it practical, real, and to build the flywheel of progress, you have to zoom in tremendously and be super detail-oriented about, as you point out, making payroll, delivering product, <laughs> generating the next bit of revenue. And it's it's shocking. The same skill set is required in in taking on big public sector or social sector efforts. Like you have to be able to kind of. I had I had teams at uh, USAID that were leading, and I was helping to lead the effort to uh, overcome the earthquake crisis in Haiti uh, right when it happened in 2010. And it was a massive tragedy. 250,000 people died, uh, very little visibility on the ground. You had to be able to kind of go all the way down to the ground and understand, okay, are women, is there enough lighting in a community to keep girls safe at night? Is there enough so micro, food like and, such and micro so, question. so micro but then you yeah. had to zoom all the way out and say okay we got 56 countries seeking to be part of this response the whole thing might cost four billion dollars how are we going to allocate resources how are we going to move fast how are we going to set a results framework that allows us to measure and respond to that whole cohort of uh, actors that are going to be part of what was the largest civil military cooperative humanitarian response in history. So you just have to be able to do both. And I think that's a skill set for entrepreneurs. I think it's mm -hmm. a skill set for people in charge of projects in, in government. I think it's a skill set for people in the social sector that really want to make change happen at scale. When you, when you, when you were thinking of of you know sort of compiling all your learnings and your knowledge and in, into big bets, do you feel like it was knowledge that was um, based on like sort of retroactive responses, or were you hoping to put this book out into the world in the hopes of saying this is a more of a proactive framework that I want you to take on? Well, I think a little bit of both. When I uh, you know I did the book in part because when honestly when I was a young kid kind of starting out my career, yeah. uh, I kind of knew I didn't want to be a practicing doctor. I'd, we had lost a presidential election. I found myself unemployed and I just had no idea what to do with myself. And I didn't believe in a million years you could have a career 
where you help Bill Gates deploy billions of dollars and save tens of millions of lives and then have a career where you work with President Obama on large global humanitarian and development priorities and then you run a kind of really historically unique uh, foundation that kind of created the movement of philanthropy before any of it existed. So I, I wanted readers to have confidence that in fact, there's a path here if you want to take it, and there are a set of tools and um, skills you can hone to be someone who has a successful career making change happen at scale if you kind of learn and apply these lessons. And I wrote it largely because I didn't have that when I was starting out, and I thought it would be helpful to others. I want to, I also want to, I want to ask a tough question that's going to set the framework for how we can be effective as people that want to give back, that want to, to take big bets. For people to take big bets or to even bet in institutions that can take on these challenges, there's a very important thing that I'd like you to speak on because I think I was looking back like three years ago, you made a very good point how people don't trust institutions as much as they should. They don't trust governments. And trust is a big thing because a lot of the issues that are big bets that are taken on by the Rockefeller Foundation, world governments, the Gates Foundation, these are things that should be nonpartisan. They are humanity-improving initiatives. But for some reason, there's a trust factor. There, there's, there's, there's discord there. So I don't think trust in institutions has gotten better since COVID. I'm pretty sure it's just gotten way worse. So yeah. how do we solve for this? Because right now, I think trust is at an all-time low across the aisle with any group that you speak to. Yeah, trust is at an all-time low in, in almost any kind of institution. And so what I was hoping is that this big bet mindset you know, mm. gives gives people the capacity to trust others and to build trust and to be an optimist when it would be very, very easy to be cynical. I know a lot of entrepreneurs listen to this show and NetSuite has been a huge supporter for entrepreneurs, for business owners, because there's one thing that we all know. Business is about making money and it's about your bottom line. And the less you spend on the nuts and bolts of running your business, the more profits you keep. But these days, everything is costing more. Supplies, people, shipping. It squeezes your margins. And I've been there juggling multiple systems for finance, inventory, you name it, each with its own costs and its own set of headaches. That's why I made the switch to NetSuite by Oracle. It's changed our company. Think about it. NetSuite is one of the top financial systems out there. It puts your whole business on one platform, accounting, finance, the works, one data source for everyone. There's no more mismatched info. And because it's in the cloud, it slashes your IT costs. No more servers, no more updates. Just access NetSuite from anywhere. With one integrated suite, your overhead drops big time. And here's the real win. Efficiency. Everything's connected in NetSuite. Costs are ridiculous lately. Find a proven way to reduce your expenses and get better performance out of your team. It's a no-brainer, and that's what NetSuite offers. Over 37,000 companies have figured this out already. You have to join them. Right now, through to April 15th, NetSuite's got an incredible, flexible financing plan. Check it out and see the savings yourself at netsuite.com slash scottclary. That's netsuite.com slash scottclary. Eufy is sponsoring today's video. They reached out to me. I tested out their video lock. It is a game changer. I'm going to paint a picture for you for why I'm so excited to work with them. So you're getting home. Your arms are loaded with groceries or packages or boxes or everything. And your keys are in your pocket. This drives me nuts. This happens all the time. I upgraded to the Eufy video lock. Fingerprint tap, I'm inside. And honestly, I also feel way safer. It's got this awesome built-in camera. So whether it's a package delivery or late night Uber order, I see exactly who's there right from my phone. There are no more mystery knocks. And the best part, this thing was such a breeze to set up. There's no wires. There's no drilling. Uh, there's also no monthly subscription fees. So if you are done fumbling with your keys, because I definitely am, search for Eufy Video Lock or head over to eufyofficial.com slash video lock your front door, your sanity. Today's show is brought to you by 1Password. Now listen, we all have that one friend who's constantly forgetting passwords and needing help to get into their accounts. I have a solution, it's called 1Password. 1Password is the award-winning password manager trusted by millions of users and companies like IBM and Slack to keep logins, credit cards, and other private info safe in an encrypted vault that only you can access. No more sticky notes with passwords or using the same password everywhere. I've been using 1Password for a year now, and I can't recommend it enough. 
It saves me time from having to reset passwords and gives me peace of mind knowing my info is secure. With convenient features like automatic password generation and login autofill, 1Password takes the hassle out of passwords. You can use it on all your devices, iOS, Android, Mac, PC. Everything syncs seamlessly. And with top-notch security audits and encryption, your data stays private. So do yourself a favor and check out 1Password today. Go to onepasswordcom slash Clary and get a two-week free trial. Let 1Password remember all of your logins for you so you can remember what really matters. That's onepasswordcom slash Clary for two weeks free. You know, yeah. it's very easy to say, well, gov- the, look, in, in government shuts down. It's not effective. It's not going to work. Um, it takes more effort and you got to have a different kind of mindset to be able to say, hey, if we really want to tackle hunger at scale globally, we need food companies working together with humanitarian partners, working together with governments at scale. And here's a playbook for how to bring that partnership together. One of the elements of building trust is reaching across the aisle and making your relationships really personal. And I write in the book about uh, efforts we pursued after 2008 when there was a, a horrific food crisis around the world related to the financial collapse and the financial crisis, 100 million people have pushed back into deep, deep hunger, kids eating mud cakes mm-hmm. in, uh, in very poor communities just to feel satiety. And we built a bipartisan coalition in the United States to pass something called the Global Food Security Act and move 100 million people out of hunger and poverty. And that happened because uh, I had the good fortune of getting to know some really conservative Republican senators who uh, on television didn't quite seem like they were going to be our partners and friends. (laughs) But in private, when you got to know their families and you got to know their values and you got to know their faith and you got to know what they really cared about, uh, they became real champions for fighting hunger, whether it was in Ethiopia or India or Indiana. And they held hands with progressive partners and made it happen at scale during a really tough political environment. And so I, I really think it's about building those personal relationships. And you can only have trust if you know people and you know their values. And, yeah. and to know their values, you have to talk about your own. You have to share what your vulnerabilities are. And you have to be very real with, th- with people that sometimes you just met. I love that, though. I think that's so important because I think that everyone being locked away and, and assuming that somebody's entire personality is their Twitter feed, is it's a very dangerous game to play, right? And I think that... I mean, some of these some of these ideas should not be partisan, should not be polarizing. And I think this is actually, you know, there's a few points. I think that trust is is monumental. I think the way you, that you build trust across aisles is very important. Another point, it was literally your first point in in this book, the ask a simple question. But there's a there's a there's a quote, um, a Bill Gates quote, and the barrier to change isn't too little caring; it's too much complexity. And I think. Complexity causes confusion and confusion creates distrust. So talk to me about simplicity, simplifying these issues, educating on these issues so that we can actually move the needle and stop worrying about the the banter back and forth. Yeah, that's a great point. I, I think it's very easy for people to uh, be put off by complexity. And it's super, how many times have you asked a question? Well, why are so many people homeless? The answer is, mm-hmm. well, it's very complex. Why do we allow 40% of American kids to grow up in child poverty? Well, that's that's super complex. You know, why uh, why are there still droughts and famines that are actually killing people um, in large numbers when food is relatively abundant and pretty cheap? It's very complex. Complexity is a way to kind of keep people out. And Bill mm-hmm. actually told this great story once. He, he was like, you know, Davos is something, the World Economic Forum, all these leaders, private sector, public sector, go to the Swiss Alps and have this big conference. And and he said, you know, you can go to Davos and sit and listen to a meeting about saving tens of millions of children's lives. And it can feel a little dry, like everyone's using big words and it's mm-hmm. all very technical and complex and very low energy. And then then you can go across the street where a software company is like launching a new game or a new piece of software and there are lights and cameras and smoke and dancing and music yeah. and it's very lively. And you're just like, why, why do we uh, try to tackle the toughest problems in the world 
use with a language and a work style that is off-putting to so many people. Like we have to make this simple to bring people in. And I saw that over and over when we did the Haiti earthquake. You know, more than more American families contributed in some form to relief around the Haiti earthquake than watched the Super Bowl that year, which shows wow. you how good American yeah. families are. How how much they want to be on the side of right morally. And they did it because we created a text thread and you could text a small contribution very quickly. They did it because lots of our partners had other ways to be a part of the solution. Instead of saying, well, it's very complex, just just sit this one out. You got to reach out and give people and trust that people want to be on the side of right if you make it possible and you make it easy for them to do so. And I think the, the the last question about trust, and then we'll keep going, but I think this is also a very important question to address. When people think about big bets, it's a sentiment that I've heard echoed repeatedly. It's like, well, we, especially in the US, and I'm not even American, but let's pretend that I am for a second. So say I'm an American and I, I'm always being told we have to help outside the country, outside the country. But to your point, there's homelessness, there's there's crime rates in certain cities that aren't great. I don't feel like the US is properly getting the, the TLC that it deserves. So for that individual that feels that way, how do you convince me to support big bets outside my country when at home I feel like government isn't even taking care of me? Yeah, so both are quite necessary, but but what we do in the context of global humanitarian and development efforts really amount to less than 1% of the federal budget. It's, it's not a huge cost item, uh, but it is uh, often some of the most cost-effective spending we've had, you know, and on a bipartisan basis. We, we mm -hmm. have, you know, when I write in the book about the effort to fight Ebola in 2014, you know, the CDC was estimating in 2014 that there could be 1.6 million cases of Ebola, that they would be all over the world, including throughout the United States. And and President Obama and, and our team made, I think, a bold decision to say, you know what, instead of that outcome, we're going to send American troops, American humanitarian partners, and global collaborators into three West African countries to fight the disease there. And when we, did, when we made that decision, by the way, we didn't know what the solution was going to be. We didn't actually know how this particular variant could be beaten in the context of reducing contagion. We had to figure that out by experimenting uh, on the ground in, in those countries in a very, very tough environment where people were literally bleeding to death in the mm -hmm. streets. It was a hemorrhagic fever that was horrific, and I write about my own visits there during that time. Um, but it's doable, and it was very cost-effective at the end of the day, and preventing a million-plus cases from getting out of that region into Europe and the United States was, was well worth the cost of deployment. It's some of the most cost-effective things we can do. I just want to take a second and thank the sponsor of today's episode, HubSpot. Now, as you all know, the Success Story podcast is part of the HubSpot Podcast Network. There are incredible podcasts in this network. One of my favorites that you have to check out if you don't know this podcast, you're kind of sleeping on it, the Gold Digger podcast hosted by Jenna Kutcher. This podcast has been around for a minute. Jenna is an OG in the podcast game. The Gold Digger podcast helps you discover your dream career with productivity tips, social strategies, business hacks, inspirational stories, interviews, and so much more. Please go check out the Gold Digger podcast hosted by Jenna Kutcher wherever you get your podcasts. I think that's very important. I think it's a very important message too. And I'm, and, I'm, and I'm glad that you sort of break it down because I think that that's lost on people, how effective some of these like these big bets can really be. It, it seems like it could be just so much bigger than you know the individual. And it seems like it could be so expensive and time consuming and resource draining, but really sometimes it's, it's not. And I think it's very important to sort of communicate that. Um, one, of the, one of the points that you mentioned, and I didn't know if this was, it was pulled out of the book and, and, you know, when we were prepping, I was looking at some of the different points we could speak about, and even you sent over some great points as well, but this was one that I thought was interesting. Um, the requirement to jump first, is that on an individual level? Is that on a, a country level? Explain to me what jumping first means. Yeah, that's an, on an individual level. You know, you, okay. you mentioned you have a lot of entrepreneurs on this, uh, yeah. on the show and, and that listen, and I, one thing I admire about entrepreneurship is it requires taking some risk, you know, going, having a vision, going out there first and saying, Hey folks, this could work. And at a time we, you know, when we had done a lot of the analysis around what it would take to vaccinate every child on the planet, 
and change the structure of the global vaccine industry, one of the answers was we needed kind of fast, early capital in order to build out the global supply base and do some long-term contracting. And so to create that capital, we invented something called an immunization bond, and to use a simple form for it. And uh, and we had all these partners, the UK, France, heads of state, chancellors of the exchequer, which is effectively like a finance minister, Gordon Brown. But everyone, no one was willing to kind of go first. So, uh, so I was, as a young professional at the Gates Foundation, I sort of said once at a one evening in a conference uh, at a bar on the back of a cocktail napkin we kind of drew out a financial structure and i said well the foundation could secure could guarantee the securitization of this new bond and uh, that guarantee kind of gave everybody confidence that okay this is going to work because an institution with billions of dollars is going to guarantee the the debt issuance and uh Fast forward two years later, when we actually issued the debt, the guarantee wasn't even needed uh, yeah. because the debt could stand on its own and was a credible financial instrument. But had we not jumped first to make that commitment, we never would have got to know whether the commitment was going to be drawn down on or not. And I, of course, made that commitment without anybody's permission to do so <laughs> uh, and got in a little trouble for it, but it ultimately worked out. And the point I'm trying to make is if you want to be a leader in social change and creating change at scale, you have to use some of those entrepreneurial techniques of taking risks and jumping first uh, to get others to go with you. I'll, I'll give you another one. Um, if you're going to fail, well, you will fail. So you have to learn how to fail fast. I want to understand this in an entrepreneurial context. I also want to understand this in a you context because your career probably had so many points where very valid imposter syndrome manifested. Uh, coming from a, a medical background, moving into these philanthropic organizations, working with some of the most established, esteemed individuals in the world. When you jump into something, is your mindset, I have to learn, I have to try, I have to fail? I'm assuming there is a portion of that, but it's also scary as hell for somebody to actually do versus you just teach over to them. Yeah, no, the mindset's definitely not I have to fail. <laughs> you know, it's kind of the opposite. <laughs> In fact, the imposter syndrome makes you afraid of failing, right? So I, I remember once when I my very first National Security Council meeting was the day I was appointed the kind of global coordinator for the Haiti earthquake response. And and we went that evening into the White House and was sitting in the situation room across from Bob Gates and Mike Mullen, the Secretary of Defense, and the incredibly thoughtful and capable chairman of the Joint Chiefs, and you know, twenty other people. And uh, and I had I had written out all the things we needed from the military in order to deploy these urban search and rescue rescue teams to go save lives in Port-au-Prince, and uh, and I'd written it all on note cards. And on the way over to the White House, I'd smudge the edge of the note cards. So <laughs> as I was reading my points, one of the things I said, well, we need these we need these C-13s to get these urban search and rescue teams and their dogs into Port-au-Prince right away. And of course, I, what I meant to say was C-130s, which is the military cargo plane. <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah. And, and so I said C-13. I didn't, I didn't realize it until, and then when it came out and I was like, should I correct myself? What do I do here? <laughs> I just rolled with it. Nobody said anything, thankfully. Um, and we went on to have an amazing uh, civ milk uh, partnership, but uh, you know, you make mistakes all the time. And so you, you uh, give yourself you the, the you let yourself. I mean, you you give yourself like the the psychological safety to know that there will be some failure, and then that's. But I think that's very important yeah. too. That's so funny. There's, there's one other thing I should say about that. Oops. Let me. There, uh, there's one other thing I should say about that, which is I I have a chapter in the book that's about failure, and it was a much bigger failure than just. Um, getting the terminology wrong about a cargo plane. It was uh, as part of a big effort to bring power and electricity to Africa. We had pursued an effort to build out a large-scale hydropower dam, which would have provided electricity to 250 million people who didn't have it and effectively live constrained because of it. And it would have been the equivalent in terms of savings on fossil fuels of taking a third of the US auto fleet off the road. Wow. So it was, a, it was a big deal. Uh, but I frankly pursued it aggressively without fundamentally understanding um, that the president of the DRC at the time and even the chairman of the appropriate committee in the U.S. Senate at the time were, were basically not going to be easily convinced to do this project with all the 
transparency and the ways we had to get it done. And so, uh, so you know, as I was charging ahead doing this and issuing press releases and raising money and, and doing all the things with a, a large global team, uh, the Senate passed a resolution that basically stopped us in our track, and the president of the host country uh, did some things that that did the same. And I woke up one day and read about it on the front page of the Financial Times. And oh, and so so you know I, what I learned from that is you do have to know who you're betting on when you make big bets. And I think that's true for for folks in the private sector, public sector, really mm-hmm. any project. And it sometimes you learn the hard way that that's work you have to do on the front end. Uh, and sometimes, sometimes you don't. How do, how do you make those? So obviously, the decisions to invest in a certain initiative or whatnot, you probably get endless uh, proposals like across your desk. So walk me even through that decision making process on deciding where to put the money and where to put the time and the resources. Because yeah, that's right. All these great causes. I'm sure not too many causes are, are bad causes. No. But there's there's scale. There's there's uh, you know feasibility. But then there's also the people that are sort of positioning this to you and are going to be the people that are going to execute on it, right? Yeah. Yeah. Our basic criteria are are things like impact, scale, leverage. You know, the single biggest investment the Rockefeller Foundation has made in 110 years of its existence we made recently to create something called the Global Energy Alliance for People and Planet. And the goal literally is to reach a billion people across the planet who live without access to electricity with renewable electrification. And the reason we could go big in that setting is we have access to some really unique new technology that allows for solar uh, grids and batteries to come together with AI and remote management and reduce the cost structure of providing electrification to rural communities that have never had access to electricity. The other reason we can do it is we know that it can largely be commercially viable. So if we put, in this case, we raised about a billion and a half dollars from ourselves and other partners. If we put a billion and a half dollars in and take the risk out for more commercial investors, we can leverage that up to 10, 20, 30 billion dollars and then you can really start to achieve impact at scale. So, you know, we actually just closed on a project in the Eastern Congo, an area ravaged by war that I write about in the book because I met these kids there that just broke my heart and they just had no opportunity and we're breaking ground right now on building out solar infrastructure that's going to provide electricity to communities, help people start businesses and create jobs for the first time in decades. And it's going to transform their lives and their families' lives. That can happen because I think for every dollar we're putting into that project, we're getting eleven dollars from private investors mm-hmm. to come in behind us, even though we take the risk. And and that's the kind of leverage we seek to deliver on when we take on these big scaled efforts. So impact, results, leverage—those are the kinds of criteria we're focused on. And and how do you you know just back to that that people piece and that team piece how do you build that right team to execute uh, and because you know you you can't control you can't control every single government in the world you can't you know even in that one uh, one example in the DRC like it was just it was frustrating and it probably there probably was a foresight there but you can't control everything so you can only control who you hire who you directly work with what's what's the secret to finding these people that are going to execute on these like literally humanity impacting missions it's not just revenue it's it's people's lives right yeah you know, I, this is something probably I've evolved the most on uh, during the course of my career. I mean, I used to look for people who were just super smart, super highly competent, um, and and say I want, wanted to be surrounded by people who were the most smart, the most competent. But over time, I've realized that actually you you need to find people that have that, but also have a sense of purpose and a sense of values that are pretty deeply grounded, that come from somewhere where they can articulate their values, why they care about this mission, why they want to go the extra mile for doing things that actually lift up those who are vulnerable. Um, and because you make sacrifices, frankly, when you when you do this. Uh, and, and then um, I always look for people we call athletes, but I, I write one of the chapters of the book is called Pivot, uh, because I, I was... I'm excited to be surrounded by a team at the Rockefeller Foundation that's willing to say, okay, we did we did this, but now there's COVID. It's destroying our nation. We need to pivot and tackle that with real intention. So finding people who are agile, flexible, can pivot, that's the other element that we look for. Very smart. Um, there's so much innovation. There's so much innovation in 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 countries around the world, and we're constantly uh, building new products and services and technologies that can 
make life better. Um, why do we have such an issue leveraging innovation to help other countries that are not as fortunate as ours? Yeah, well, first, I think we have to recognize that a lot of innovation is not uh, really fundamentally improving quality of life, right? Yeah. In, in its most profound ways. I mean, we used to look back 20 years ago and say, you know, the, the world at that time spent six times more on developing the next erectile dysfunction product versus <laughs> literally versus finding a vaccine to end AIDS, malaria, and TB combined. And you're like, okay, what's wrong here? And it's not not that there's anything against Viagra, but we already had Viagra. So yeah. it was like, it was like but in, because market incentives are what they are. Today's version of that would be a lot of our social media platforms are mm -hmm. probably making us less healthy and less whole and less democratic as a society than uh, you know than they could be so so there there's that and then frankly there's the reality of the global macro economy i mean right now as we're having this conversation there are about 50 countries teetering on the edge of a debt crisis and most private commercial investment flows are going from lower income countries to wealthier economies that are the beneficiaries right now of trillions of dollars of green economy subsidy investments so where would you rather build a battery plant, right? Mm -hmm. yeah. <laughs> in in yeah. the United States or in in a part of Africa where the currency just got devalued forty percent? So where I just happened to be there a few weeks ago, and that was the situation. So so we you know there have been times in our history where leaders have come together after World War II, for example, and understood that it was both macro and micro effects, and they built institutions like the World Bank and the IMF and the United Nations to reshape how the global economy uh, developed and how we'd prevent conflict at scale. And I've argued that we need that kind of a moment again when we have leaders mm -hmm. who are willing to come together and say, you know what, the challenges we face, climate change, massive hunger and dislocation, 1.2 billion climate refugees by 2050, they require a way of thinking about our global commons in a way that's fresher and more novel and more innovative. And I think we need to go through that now at a leadership level. You know, uh, this is just very interesting because World War II, it really galvanized, uh, to your point, every, quite a few nations and countries. You would, think that, uh, you would think that an event like coronavirus, like COVID, would also galvanize. It did, it seems like the exact opposite of galvanizing anybody. So how do we, like, what happened here? Why can we not, as a, as a world, get together and get on board with some of these initiatives? Why does it still feel like so, it feels like there's such a, an argument against basically what you just mentioned happened post-World War II? Yeah. Well, you're, you're right that COVID was so widespread that many of us hoped that it would change the consciousness, you know, that you'd understand that, okay... Uh, we are all interconnected and that a disease that might emerge from China or part of Africa or a part of Latin America can wipe out millions of lives in the United States and vice versa. So let's cooperate to tackle those problems in a more uh, forward-looking way. Honestly, I blame a lot of the lack of getting there to our politics and, and people uh, like the the book Big Bets is about global solutions that have mm -hmm. we've demonstrated can work at scale, and uh, and I and right now our politics are pretty fragmented, which is why I want young people in particular to read the book and some mm -hmm. of them at least, to, if not just vote for the right candidates, go into politics themselves and be part of reshaping the future because we we have had times in our past, as you noted, when we can when we have come together around a higher purpose and a higher calling. And I've just seen it in communities across this country and across the world. I think people want to be part of solutions that are designed to produce gains for everybody in a way that's bigger than themselves. We are not fundamentally designed to be purely self-interested mm -hmm. um, our entire lives. We just kind of beat it out of people over time in our own country. <laughs> so I, I, want to, I, I hope more people read the book and say, okay, I can be part of the solution. Um, and in in your opinion, with innovation, is there a red flag moment where innovation that is driven by the market is creating further gaps and further divides? Because there's sort of two views on this. I mean, globalization in terms of you know what what happened post pandemic with 
everyone working from home and now you have a global marketplace of talent and you can hire people from different countries and you can afford them different opportunities. That's great. But then also with innovation, I mean, we look at some of the, I don't think, I don't know if people, I have no idea. I don't want to sound like I, I know for sure, but I feel like, for example, the evolution of AI and some of the applications for business, I feel like it's being used more in the U.S., than in other parts of the world. And that could just be totally me being naive. I have no idea, but maybe you go to these different countries. Do you see innovation in the US being a positive for other countries or a negative? Well, I think it's definitely a positive. Uh, you okay. know, in a, the story of innovation has been one of invention creation somewhere in the world and then over time uh, diffusion and it doesn't create a bigger broadly. imbalance it creates a and, more positive well well effect. no so depending on depending on how it's embraced it can actually right. create divides if you look at you know the agricultural productivity improvements from the 1500s and the 1600s actually lowered the standard of living of many of the peasant producers because of the economic infrastructure and political infrastructure of medieval europe basically uh, but but that's why it's so important that we come together in these collaborations that are public and private. You know, when we reshaped the global vaccine industry and focused on saving child lives, that was a collaboration that came together and we said, okay, let's actually make sure we're manufacturing, you know, 10, 50 times the scale of product at price points that are lower, at volumes that are high, so everyone can access them. Like that consciousness on the front end was the only thing that ultimately created that outcome on the back end. And I think, by the way, we need to do exactly that now with the renewable energy revolution. We should be looking at how battery manufacturing can be mm -hmm. global and be at high enough volumes that allow prices to be low and access to be ubiquitous. You know, if you think about renewable, think about solar energy or just renewables in general, less than 1% of all renewable energy deployment on a global basis since its invention about 20 years ago has been in Africa, less than 1%. And about 60% of the world's energy poor, people who don't have enough electricity to power their home and one appliance on an annual basis are in Africa. So to solve the, the markets alone are not going to solve those mismatches, which is why, mm -hmm. you know, which is why I write about these big collaborations, big bets that bring together the public sector, policymakers, and private innovators to create change at scale. And I'll say one thing about that is I have mm -hmm. found that the private companies that are part of these efforts actually love being a part of these efforts because most companies are populated by people who want to change the world at scale. They want to be a part of something that's big and important and meaningful. And I've seen it when we got Cargill to donate rice in the middle of a famine in the port of Mogadishu. I've seen it when we got drug and vaccine companies to change their manufacturing and access IP policies. And I'm seeing it right now in our renewable energy partnerships where people, especially people that work in these companies, they want to be part of something special. Mm -hmm. And when you look at all the different initiatives that you, you are taking on and that you're trying to solve for, what is, what is the biggest bet that is concerning, that is existential that could really, really impact for the better or worse if we don't focus on it. I just want to take a second and thank Policy Genius. They're supporting today's episode of Success Story. I know we all have kids. We all have families we want to take care of. And I personally check something off major on my to-do list, life insurance. It's a tough topic. It's really hard to think about, but it's so important. And the hard part was sorting through all the options. Luckily, I found Policy Genius. Policy Genius is an online insurance marketplace that makes getting life insurance surprisingly easy. With Policy Genius, you can find life insurance policies that start at just $292 per year for a million dollars of coverage. Some options offer same-day approval and avoid unnecessary medical exams. Now, knowing my family's protected brings me incredible peace of mind. Don't put off this important decision. Check life insurance off your to-do list in no time with Policy Genius. Head to policygenius.com or click the link in the description to get your free life insurance quotes and see how much you could save. That's policygenius.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. 
Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Thank you so much, Indeed, for sponsoring Success Story. For all business leaders out there, Indeed is a lifesaver. See, we're always driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. You're going to ditch the busy work and you're going to use Indeed for scheduling, screening, messaging, so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. So the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash Clary. Just go to Indeed.com slash Clary right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash Clary. Terms and conditions apply. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Well, I think right now it is it is making sure we get uh, the energy transformation or the energy transition to mm-hmm. reach every part of the globe as quickly as possible. Uh, just to put it in perspective, all of the talk of Paris commitments and climate targets and all that, it all leaves out one big piece of math, and that is the emissions that come from developing economies over the next 20, 20 or 30 years. So we could be successful at changing emissions use in richer countries uh, we could be more than successful at hitting our targets, and we would still make our planet literally unlivable if we don't ensure that India and Brazil and South Africa and Nigeria and the DRC switch from diesel generation and heavy fuel oils and coal to renewable electricity. And right now, precious little is being done on that, despite 10, 15 years of commitments and press releases and talk to do so, mm-hmm. which is why our foundation is all in on making that renewable energy frontier a vehicle that lifts up everybody, not just those that live in wealthy economies. What what do we have to do to fix that? Because this is now you're talking about, you're talking about imposing, not imposing, well, yeah, kind of imposing policy on a government that probably doesn't, you know, you know, without lack of a better word, doesn't give a shit the way that <laughs> they should give a well, shit. Well, you know, it's interesting. If you if you go, because I spent so much time working with governments around the world on exactly this issue, um, and if you sit with Prime Minister Modi or you sit with President Ruto in Kenya, Modi's in India, you know, they actually understand that, hey, solar power on 320 million Indian rooftops can create a second income stream for Indians farmers and can end poverty in our country while also reducing the need for coal and heavy fuel oil in the future. The challenge is attracting investment. The challenge is overcoming a reality that most of the subsidies are in the richer world. So right now everyone's investing in the United States and Europe. And frankly, the challenge is making sure we have supply chains for these various products and commodities that are not entirely dependent on China and that are in fact much more distributed. So, you know, we need a globalization that actually allows for manufacturing of critical minerals and batteries and solar panels and equipment that's everywhere, not just in a few places. And we need uh, some real transfers of public sector resources from wealthy economies to Mm -hmm. less wealthy economies so that everyone can access the energy future, not just a few. Do Do you see that? Being a reality, do you have a a, a playbook on, right, on how we, to achieve we, that? We have a we have a playbook. There's a there's a chapter in the book on exactly that task. And I would tell you, <laughs> we are uh, it's it's slow work, but we are starting to succeed. I mean, when we launched the Global Energy Alliance, we put five hundred million dollars yeah. in ourselves, raised a billion dollars from the IKEA Foundation, the Bezos Earth Fund. Thank you to both, and and then we got another ten billion in from all of these multilateral development banks. Uh, that's about eleven billion. Today, we're in discussion with the next set of commercial banking partners to say, hey, you you want to be part of this solution. And we're even designing, uh, we're designing credits so that companies that need to buy carbon credits can do so by enabling these types of renewable energy projects like the one I described in the DRC. So it's possible to envision a future where 
a billion people move out of poverty because they have access to solar and wind and renewable energy. And it's possible to envision a future where 75% of the world's emissions do not come from what we today call developing economies, but it depends on us making the decisions now and building the kinds of public-private partnerships today. Have you figured out, have you figured out, say, I'm very curious about the number that you would have to raise because you have that number. I know that you have that number. So what is that number that you have to raise and to, to radically shift um, global warming and, and, all, and the, you know, the, the use of all these different types of uh, uh, fuel sources in these developing nations? What's that number? And then also, what's the time frame that we could actually accomplish that in if you had that number? Okay. So there have been, you're right. We've done the math. There have been about <laughs> six different analyses that all have the same answer. And that number is about $2 trillion a year for about 10 to 15 years. And, uh, and that seems like such a massive uh, amount of investment that it's impossible to imagine getting there. And then you realize, hey, wait a minute, that is 2% of the global economy. When America helped rebuild Western Europe after World War II, we committed about 2% of our economic GDP to the task of creating the Marshall so Plan. So we've done it. We've done and this we, before. And, and we did it before. And by the way, if we didn't do it, Europe, Western Europe wouldn't have been our stalwart partner in an Atlantic chartered partnership for decades that has maintained peace and prosperity. It's the same moment. We can do it again. We just have to inspire people. It's possible. And by the way, if you think 2% of the global economy is a lot, which you should, <laughs> uh, you know, if you look at just the excess windfall profits earned by petro states in the last two years because of or two and a half years because of very high oil prices, that's been about two and a half percent of the global economy. So if we had the capacity to you know, tax. There's been a great proposal to tax that and transfer, but you know, it, it's it's out there. We just have to be more ambitious in what we seek to accomplish, and we have to be clear that this time, this is not just a humanitarian enterprise. Our planet's survival depends on our ability to get this right. I love that. Okay, um, let's let's uh, get some last closing thoughts from from Big Bets. If you wanted to, you know, if you wanted to bring up one last lesson or one last thought or story that would be really really impactful uh, for the audience, what would that last lesson be? Well, we've talked a lot about Big Bets. There are these big global initiatives, and one thing that I have found so inspiring is that. It really anyone anywhere in any community can make a big bet and see it through. And when I first got started in this work, I spent a summer kind of interning basically with a doctor in Southern India who was just going door to door looking for people with leprosy and finding, once he had eradicated leprosy from this, this sort of community in a rainforest, he realized what kids really needed was nutrition support. So he took these malnourished kids and helped, helped resuscitate them. And it was just amazing to watch. And what it taught me is that big bets are about uh, big global things, and they're also about just in your local community making a difference um, in any way you can. And and I I think that's an important part of the book. And I love the fact that I get to tell some of these stories because these folks bring so much inspiration. Um, if people want to get the book, if they want to connect with you, see where you're, you know, see what you're working on, where where should they go? The social, the website. I'm sure it's all over Amazon and wherever you get your books as well, but other places. Yeah, come come to Rockefeller uh, Rockfound.org, our website, and join our Big Bet community. Uh, we're looking for uh, people who want to be part of the solution, and and we want to help you uh, live out your aspirations to be a big better. So so come join us. What does that mean? Uh, what's the Big Bet community? So if, if people actually want to get involved, what are they doing with you? Uh, well, right now we're just asking people to sign up and and over time we're going to have programs and outreach so that people okay. can get trained in how to do this and people who are seeking uh, jobs or internship experiences or connections to uh, nonprofit organizations and others, uh, we facilitate what we can so people feel like they're connected to getting a chance to express their values in this way. I love it. All right. Okay. Um, just to close this out, you've had an incredible career. Um, I'm actually going to ask you two questions. The first question would be, if you could tell your 20-year-old self one thing after everything that you've done, what would that thing be? If I could tell my 20-year-old self, uh, what would that one thing be? You know, honestly, it would be uh, take a little time out to to journal and to take pictures and to reflect on each day uh, because 
it's going to be okay. And, and these moments are the moments you'll look back on and cherish. I love that. And then again, incredible career, multiple seasons to your career at this point in your life, both for the Rockefeller organization, for what you're working on, but also personally, what does success mean to you? You know, right now, it's success is really about helping others, and uh, and sometimes that's I have three wonderful kids, uh, and maybe I missed a little too much of uh, their early childhood. So it's helping them be the best they can be, and my parents a little older. It's helping them, and and my uh, teammates here that I work with is just just helping folks uh, be their best self uh, is super rewarding. And I didn't fully appreciate that when I was younger, I think, in my career. So I get to spend more time thinking about that now. Prescription products require completion of an online medication consultation with an independent healthcare provider through the LifeMD platform and are only available if prescribed. Subscription required. Individual results may vary. Additional restrictions apply. Read all warnings before using GLP-1s. Side effects may include a risk of thyroid C-cell tumors. Do not use GLP-1s if you or your family have a history of thyroid cancer. If you've struggled for years to lose weight and have given up hope, did you know you can now access GLP-1 prescription medications at TryLifeMD.com? We're now offering eligible patients online access to GLP-1s, the breakthrough prescription medication that can help you lose body fat and weight. Listen to what people are saying. It's fun to put on jeans that you couldn't get into six months ago. Every morning, I look forward to getting on the scale. For anybody who's struggling with their weight, it's a godsend. And here's the best part. Your insurance may cover 100% of the cost of your medication. So go to TryLifeMD.com to have your eligibility checked right now. Get started today at trylifemd.com. That's T R Y L I F E M D.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.